Good morning, church. I tell you what, as you know, if you've been here, uh, we have be- 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 begun exploring biblical community over the last seven weeks have we launched, as we launched into the new year. Well, this morning, we're going to look to Genesis chapter number 22, and I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, if you would, please. Genesis chapter number 22, and um, our focus today is going to shift kind of away from biblical community specifically to a concentrated series that we've designed to prepare our hearts for the Easter season. Now, biblical community, it, it's not going away, rest assured, all right? It will continue to be our underlying emphasis throughout the year of 2024, but, but for these weeks ahead, leading us to Easter, we're going to consider how Jesus became the Lamb of God. You know, on what was for John the Baptist, a somewhat common day of ministry. Uh, he was preaching and baptizing in the Jordan River, as he so often did. And man, this guy, he was a rugged, outdoorsy guy, John the Baptist. I mean, he's wearing clothes stitched together of camel's hair, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. He's an outdoorsy guy. And, uh, but on this day, he found himself finally fulfilling the, the, the ministry and, and the prophesied calling upon his life as the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, if John had not grasped the truth of this already, it finally all came together for him when he looked up that day, and by the revelation of the Holy Spirit of God, he recognized Jesus, his cousin, once and for all as the true Messiah, the Holy One of God sent to redeem his people. And I have to suspect that it was with this sense of excitement and awe that he directed the crowd's attention to this humble man quietly approaching the place of baptism. This man from Nazareth had come to the River Jordan to be baptized of John, just as so many other people had done that day. But on this day, John the Baptist rejoiced to finally look to Jesus, and he declared to the crowds, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, as we approach Palm Sunday and Easter next month, we're going to take opportunity to unpack just what is held there in that statement, that unexpected statement of John's. You see, for the local crowds who were gathered together with John that day by the the banks of the Jordan River, when he called Jesus the Lamb of God, it painted in their minds immediately this very clear, vivid picture Their culture understood the prominent place of lambs in Israel's history and in their um, sacrificial religious system. But, But for us, in a culture that is so far removed from their own, well, John's statement is not immediately obvious to us. Why would he call Jesus a lamb in the first place? Like, what does that even say about Jesus? Is is that a is that a compliment or is it a cut down? It's kind of hard to tell. I mean. A lamb? Not exactly a gleaming picture of bold, roaring victory and power, right? Bah. (laughs) Doesn't shout, you know, sovereign Lord of all. Well, let me tell you, if you have spent a large portion of your life in church, you've likely connected the dots by now to, to kind of understand why John would refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God, this long the long awaited Messiah. He referred to him as a humble, and many would even say weak, lamb. But you know, if church 
life and, and biblical teaching have not been a staple for you, well, then this idea of associating Jesus with a young sheep, that might still seem very, very strange to you. And so in this new Behold the Lamb series, we're going to begin exploring some of the Old Testament foundations that lie behind what John the Baptist said there in John chapter 1. We're going to look into some of the everyday truths that allowed the culture of John's day to quickly understand just what he was saying. And over the next several weeks, we'll all hopefully gain a better and deeper understanding and appreciation of what John meant when he pointed people to Jesus with those telling words, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I'll just tell you up front that the Old Testament foundations of that title, the Lamb of God, the, the foundation of that, it is necessarily and fundamentally based on sacrifices. And the idea of such sacrifices, specifically animal sacrifices, that's something that's very unfamiliar to us. And well, frankly, it's kind of uncomfortable for us as well. I mean, let's be honest, when we hear anything about animal sacrifices happening today, our minds immediately think of someone who must be depraved and disturbed. We, we think of some satanic cult or voodoo or witch doctor or some kind of evil such as that. But, but I'm telling you, for many, many generations of human existence, animal sacrifices were just an everyday part of regular life. As we find in the Old Testament law, animal sacrifices were sp specifically prescribed by God as part of how his people would worship him. And so we first need to understand that, that there was a normality to sacrifices for those people of ancient times. Okay, with that in mind, as we look to Genesis chapter 22, we're going to see today that it was still centuries before God would establish the formal sacrificial system for his people, and yet Abraham embraced God's command to offer a sacrifice. What was distinctly odd and unwelcome, though, was that God's command was to offer the sacrificial son. God had called unassuming Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees to step out in faith and relocate to the land of Canaan, what we know today as modern Israel. And um, as an act of grace, the Lord promised to Abraham that he would become the father of a great multitude of descendants, what we know today as the Jewish people. Uh, the only problem was Abraham had no children. And he was already 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, was just 10 years younger than him at 65 at the time that the promise came. How was he going to become the father of multitudes? Well, you add to that, it was another quarter century when Abraham was 100 and Sarah 90 before God finally fulfilled his unlikely promise to faithful Abraham. Isaac, the son of the promise, was miraculously born to these aged parents. And according to God's own declaration, it was through Isaac alone and through Isaac specifically that the greater promises to Abraham's descendants would be fulfilled. And so Isaac's was literally a miracle birth. And the only way God's promise could be fulfilled was through Isaac, 
the promise that through Isaac he would be the father of multitudes, that through Isaac Abraham's descendants would inherit the land of Canaan, that through Isaac and in him all nations of the earth would be blessed. And he was pointing, of course, to the Messiah who would one day come as a descendant of Abraham through Isaac. The only way God's promise could be fulfilled was utterly dependent upon Isaac's survival. And then came Genesis 22. Look with me there, and we'll put these words on screen if you've not found it in your Bible. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait, what? Scripture reports to us kind of the bare necessities of the facts of this uh, event. It does not report to us the emotionality behind it and what Abraham must have been feeling and, and, and wondering in these moments. In fact, it just goes straight in and says, verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Like, it was just, oh, okay, no big deal. Yeah, I'll do that. You know, I don't think it was quite that easy for Abraham. In fact, for the next three days, he and Isaac would walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so to speak. Abraham knowing that they were on a journey where, that would end when he sacrificed his son. We pick up in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, we read that word boy in reference to Isaac, and we think, oh, we, we, we picture like this some little kid, right? But I, I really don't think that's the case. In fact, commentators and scholars agree that Isaac was almost certainly at least a strapping teenager, by this time, based largely on verse 6, because it says there that and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So Isaac was old enough and strong enough at least to carry this burden of the wood for this burnt offering that's about to happen and carry it on this hike over to that mountain over there. And so he, he wasn't just a young child at the time. And so we pick up in the middle of verse 6, and he, uh, he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham in verse 7, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the, the fire and the wood, like I see these, but, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I mean, that's, that's a reasonable question, Isaac. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. Again, we don't get the, most, the emotion reported here, how hard it must have been for Abraham to field that question. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now consider Isaac strong enough to carry that wood on a hike over to that mountain. He was strong enough he could have resisted his aged father, who's now 110-something, at least years old. He could have resisted, but apparently he did not. He submitted to, the, to his father's will. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, whew, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or as you see in some translations, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord our provider. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Church, I will tell you, there are a lot of applications that can be made from this pivotal passage in Genesis. But for this morning, we're going to narrow our focus to Abraham's rich statement there in verse number eight. In fact, we will put this on screen for you, and we want the, I want this to kind of set in for you, where Abraham said to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb. At this point, when Isaac asked the poignant question about the lamb, I think maybe Abraham was speaking just out of hope as he answered his son, just imagining, hoping that God would somehow intervene and provide a substitute sacrifice. And of course, that's what ended up happening, but Abraham didn't know that was coming. I think Abraham was speaking by faith as well. He was just trusting that however this sacrifice turned out, God's plan and God's pleasure are better even than his own comfort or preference. But now, I don't believe Abraham really understood the prophetic and, and theological wealth within his simple reply to his son. As he calmed Isaac's concern and calmed his own nervous heart, Abraham uttered those straightforward words you see on screen, God will provide for himself the lamb. It's from those seven words that we take our outline for this morning. And first, we see that God is the provider. God is the provider. I mean, one lesson Abraham had unquestionably learned throughout his years uh, was that God will provide. He's always been the provider. I mean, we can go back to page one in creation and see that God provided. He created everything, and he provided for his creation. And that, goes, that carries on today. We read over in Colossians how that Jesus, in his power, he sustains creation. It says there that by him, by Jesus, all things consist. And what that means is that literally the universe is held together by the power and the ongoing provision of Jesus Christ. He is the provider. Scripture tells us that God is the provider. He's the one that provides us with the power to get wealth. He provides fruit in its season. He provides for us financially. He provides for us medically, and on and on and on we could go about how God provides in our lives. He is the provider. I'm telling you, Abraham could look back at how God had provided for him all along his way up to this point. And, and so in this crisis moment, he could by faith trust and know that God will provide. Let me tell you, there's a lesson for us there. As we look back at how God has provided for us all along the way, when you come to that crisis moment, by faith you can know and trust that God will continue to provide because he is the provider. 
Now, Abraham didn't know how, and he sure didn't know just when, but he knew that God would somehow provide. And let me tell you, God is still our faithful provider. All that we have is from his hand, and he will continue to provide for our needs. Oh, but God's provision, it goes well beyond just our immediate physical needs. Because as we consider the broad theological reality of mankind's sin that has separated us from our loving creator, as we consider our need for a worthy sacrifice to reconcile us to God, oh, well, Abraham's prophetic accuracy is all the more on point. Because indeed, God, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, he has provided for the greatest need in all of our lives. In the gospel, God has provided for our salvation. The Father provided his Son by the Spirit to become our sacrifice so that we can be forgiven and cleansed of our sins, so that we can be uh, made new as we're washed in the blood of the Lamb, so that we can be forever reconciled to God. Or as Romans 5 says it, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God, knowing the hopelessness of man to redeem ourselves, knowing our stark inability to ever offer a sacrifice worthy to remove sin's penalty, God himself provided what we could never provide on our own. You see, the story of the gospel and how it has spread and transformed hearts by the multiplied millions down through the ages, it is not the story of how man has somehow clawed his way back into God's good graces. No. No, rather, the gospel is the story of how God extended his grace to undeserving man by providing in the gospel what we are, in fact, helpless to provide ourselves. The gospel's about Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, the one who provides mercy and forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son. It's about how God provided the lamb, just as Abraham prophetically said he would. He provided the lamb for the necessary sacrifice to save our sinful souls. God is the provider. Not only that, we see secondly this morning that God is the provision the provision. God the Son, Jesus, is himself the very lamb who, whom he would provide to ransom man from the wages of sin. You know, I will tell you, um, uh, the King James Version is not considered the best rendering of the original Hebrew here in Genesis 22, but I still like the way it translates verse 8 in particular because it expresses this biblical truth that is just a fundamental element of the gospel message when he said in Genesis 22, 8 in the King James Version, it reads, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. Not just God will provide for himself, but God will provide himself as a lamb. God himself, Jesus, became the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And this truth points us back once again to the sheer majesty of the incarnation. It's what we celebrate formally, of course, at Christmas during the Advent season. We celebrate how that God himself became a human. Jesus, the eternally existent son of the Father, stepped out of heaven and stepped into the womb of a virgin named Mary. He was born incomprehensibly, God himself was born. 
as a human. And not only did Jesus become a man, but when he was about 33 years of age, he became our sin bearer. He became the sacrificial lamb. And upon him was thrust the full weight of our sin. The full wrath of the Father levied against the rebellious sin of man. That wrath against sin, which in Noah's day was sufficient that it destroyed all of mankind through the great flood. Well, that is all of mankind except for those who found grace in the eyes of God. And it's the same wrath still today that is levied against, uh, it levies an eternal penalty against our sin. And so those who go out into eternity apart from the grace of God without redeeming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will bear God's wrath against their sin forever. But the very reason that Jesus became a man was so that he instead could bear God's wrath against our sin. And he did that as the lamb of God. As the sacrificial lamb, he bore our sin to Calvary where he suffered, where he bled precious redeeming blood upon a sacrificial altar in the shape of a Roman cross. There at Calvary, Jesus, the eternal son of God, died as a man under the penalty of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us as he bore our sin and the curse of sin in his own body upon the cross. For not only is Jesus the Lamb of God, but Revelation 13, 8 tells us he is the Lamb slain. He was slain from even before the foundation of the world. It was established. It's always been God's plan and purpose to save man by becoming the very provision that we could never provide on our own. So God is the provider, and he is the provision. And finally this morning, understand, God is the propitiation. You might have to look at the screen to spell that one, I know. (laughs) Propitiation, what? (laughs) This is a fancy theological word. It it sounds almost otherworldly and kind of out of touch with our common day-to-day lives. To propitiate means to appease wrath. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb to appease the wrath of God against sin. You see, humanity in various ways and across cultures from time immemorial has been trying to appease the wrath of, quote, the gods as humanity has seen it. We might say that this word propitiation, it's very much like the husband who has upset his wife and consequently finds himself in the doghouse. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? nobody's raising a hand. Okay. So be it. That's cool. Uh, But he comes home with, you know, a peace offering, right? Maybe it's flowers or chocolate for his angry, hurt wife in an effort to appease her wrath. Let the record show this morning, by the way, I am not necessarily recommending this, guys, okay? It might work for you in your house. It's never been my go-to move, although there have been plenty of times that I have upset my bride. Um, We're going to move on from that. Anyway, um, (laughs) verse number eight, the scripture says there that, that God will provide for himself the lamb. That is to appease his own wrath against sin. And that's why Isaiah 53 so strangely tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush Jesus because he provided the lamb 
for himself, for his own pleasure in the gospel. God in Jesus became the very propitiation for his own wrath. We find that plainly stated in, in Scripture. You can read about it in Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2, again in 1 John 4.10. It just plainly says Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. And here is where the biblical message stands out from all religious belief systems because it's simply not in man to appease God's wrath. But only God himself could offer a worthy sacrifice to do so. You see, we need to get our heads around this difficult truth, that God didn't even enact the gospel for us. Now, the first and fundamental purpose of the gospel is to display the great glory of God. Now, thank the Lord, he was, of course, motivated by his great love for us, and we certainly are the beneficiaries, I said that wrong, beneficiaries of Jesus' sacrifice for us. But the foremost heart of the gospel is that God is glorified in redeeming our souls unto himself. As Abraham said, he provided the Lamb of God for himself, for his glory for his joy, for his delight, for his pleasure in the gospel of our redemption. And so the provider became the provision even as he became the propitiation for our sin. In church, I will tell you, there is so much more here in Genesis 22 that I would love to be able to unpack this morning. Uh, parallels we see like how Isaac, the son of the promise, entered this world through a miraculous birth, much like Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, entered this world through a miraculous birth. Or how Abraham, so like our heavenly father, was willing to sacrifice his son to appease God. Isaac, who was strong enough to carry that wood for the burnt offering, certainly was able to physically resist his aged father, and yet Isaac was willing to lay down his life and climb up on that altar how he pictures Jesus, the Lamb of God, who willingly laid down his life, though he didn't have to. I love the imagery of how Abraham laid upon Isaac the burden of the wood for the burnt offering, so much like the Father laid upon Christ the burden of the iniquity of us all. And as Isaac bore the wood of, that, uh, uh, um, of the burnt offering to the place of sacrifice there on Mount Moriah, so Jesus bore our sin to the place of sacrifice on Mount Calvary. Now, unlike the world-changing events there at Calvary, Abraham, with that knife drawn and raised in obedience, he was stopped from slaying his son, his sacrificial son. The father, though, did not withhold death from his sacrificial son. As the Roman soldier raised his hammer to drive the nails deep into the hands and feet of Jesus, the father did not intervene and stop him. Abraham would not withhold even his only son from God's will and purpose, and so glory to God, the father did not withhold his only son from his eternal will and purpose in the gospel. Instead, much like the Lord provided a substitutionary ram to take Isaac's place, so God provided the Lord Jesus as a substitutionary lamb to take our place. We 
deserved that cross. I deserve to bear the full weight of God's wrath against sin, but praise to God, the sacrificial son took my place on the cross. Amen? Now, church scripture does not tell us this plainly, but I just wonder if perhaps that fateful day by the banks of the Jordan River when John the Baptist looked up and, and, and he announced, behold, the Lamb of God, I wonder if he was perhaps thinking about Abraham and Isaac's, Isaac's parallels to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the sacrificial son, the provider, who is himself the provision, who in fact is the propitiation for our sin. Church, let us give glory to God this morning. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, the one who paid the debt of our sin, the Lamb of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your grace in the gospel. Thank you that you are the provider. You became the provision because we just couldn't provide on our own. Thank you that you became the propitiation for our sin. Father, thank you that so many in this room as we've gathered together, we can together as, uh, as we will sing in just a moment, praise the one who paid my debt and raised my life up from the dead. God, we do give you great glory for that this morning. At the same time, we recognize there are likely some here in these very seats, some within the sound of my voice watching online who have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. They've never received that grace, eternal life and redemption. Today, May they better understand that you became the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Son, to take their place on the cross. God, would you draw all people unto yourself as we worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.